Hi. All right, grab your Bibles. That's where we're going to get started this morning. Good to see all your smiling faces. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Jonah today. We're going to finish a little more of the story. And um, if you tracked with the uh, skit, um, come see me afterwards and explain to me what happened. No, I'm just kidding. It's the beauty of live production, man. Anything can go wrong. And today, everything went wrong. It was awesome, though. Connor did a great job. Everyone's, everyone did great. Okay, so we talked last night about the beginning of the story of Jonah. We got Jonah, guy. he's a prophet. He speaks on behalf of God, which a prophet doesn't always just tell the future. Sometimes they just tell the truth. So Jonah is sent to go to the land called, but homie didn't want to. He instead went to the land called, well, he tried anyway. He's on his way. He's on a boat, like you do. And in the middle of that, a great storm comes out. Remember, we, we highlighted a few things. I had you circle a few things last night that I want to pay attention to. The wickedness, Jonah focuses on the wickedness of the people. And last night with Jack and Wes, and uh, we, we sat in the middle and we tried, we tried to help to articulate that when it comes between us and God, we don't, we're, not, we're never given permission to say, those people need salvation bad. Those are the wicked ones. That if we are not in Christ, if we haven't given our life over to Jesus, we are all one. James says, like I said last night, if you've stumbled in one part of the law, you've broken the whole thing. The Bible makes one thing clear too. If you are born human, you've broken every part of the law. Right? So by, by nature of your nature, you're sinful. That's why Jesus was born of a virgin and not born of man, because he couldn't uh, inherit original sin. Original sin is the sin that we're all born with naturally. We're all born sinful. And then we perpetuate it every day, right? We lie and we cheat and we, cheat and we steal and we <laughs> tell half-truths and we hurt people and we hate people. And let's just like, call it what it is. We are, we are all sinners, and, 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 and we don't have good days. We're like, we're doing a little bit better. It's just perpetually worse. We are the wicked ones. We are the evil ones. I've had people, as, a, as an apologist, one of the most popular questions that atheists ask me, ask me is, um, based on scripture, why does, bad, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Or why doesn't God just eliminate all evil? And when you, when you open up the scripture, you say, listen, friend, if we're going to talk biblically, you've already made like three faux pas in your one question. First of all, what do, you, what do you mean God allows bad things to happen? And what do you mean by good people? Where's a good person? It's, it, the, the, Romans 3.10, there is no one righteous, not even one. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We have all purposely sinned against him. We are, we are marked with pride and jealousy and selfish motives and intentions. All the, there, there's only been one good person ever, and he voluntarily walked to a cross. Why do bad things happen to good people? That only happened once, and his name was Jesus. All the rest of us are deserving of death. We're deserving of brokenness. C.S. Lewis puts it one way. He says, people ask the question all the time, man, how come there's so much bad in the world? And the question we should be asking is in a fallen world like this, why in the world in God's grace and his graciousness after we've rebelled against him do we ever experience a moment of joy? What kind of a God has forgiven us and given us permission to experience the common grace of his love, the beauty of outdoors, the power of family, the laughter of friendship? These are all gifts from God that he doesn't deserve to give us in the first place. But behind our coffee mugs and and quaint little world in America, we simply go, well, 
if God made us, he's probably really obsessed with how we're doing. And it doesn't seem like he's really paying attention because he would make me want to have good things. He would make me want to be healthy. He'd make me want to be wealthy. He'd make me want to be wise. And so what we end up doing is we create a version of God in our head. And when you worship a fake version of God, it's called idolatry. We talked about like blatant idolatry last night, right? Like these, it says right here in the text. Uh, verse 5, all the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God, right? So they might be like, oh, Baal, protect us. Oh, Asherah, protect us. King Triton, save us, right? Like, <laughs> Oprah Winfrey, right? Like, it doesn't, they might have all their actual gods, but, but some of us, and this is, this is what I want to talk about today, some of us actually worship Yahweh falsely, and in doing so, we practice idolatry. We actually think we know the God of the Bible, but we've, we've allotted on him characteristics and we painted him with paintbrushes that we're not allowed to paint him with. And we've given, given him character and given him ways that he thinks and acts. And, it, and at the end of the day, we've missed him completely. It's just not him anymore. Like if, if one of you walked up to me and you were like, Steve, I would go, what? <laughs> Steve, dude, I love it, man. I love it, man. I, I, knew, I know you from way back in the day, right? You were dating that girl Rachel in high school. And uh, yeah, you've got like those two kids and you love to surf. You love surfing. You love getting up early and getting in the cold water. Like that's so you, man. I would go, who are you talking about? Like, anyone who knows me knows that, first of all, my name is Chris, not Steve. Secondly, I didn't, who's Rachel? Like, third, I don't know what you're talking I've got five kids. So, like, I, I, who are you talking about? But we do the same thing to God, right? It's it, a, a great theologian once said, God made us in his own image, and we've been re- trying to return the favor ever since. God made us in his image. Now we go, well, God, let, let, me, try my, <laughs> let me try my hand at this. Let me make you in my image. I've had the privilege to go to Israel a couple of times. We get to go to the seat of civilization. Like, I get to walk where Jesus walked. I get to see the things that Jesus saw. I get to float on the seas that Jesus floated on. I get to see the place where he's crucified. I get to see the place where all of these amazing events in history happen. You're standing right there. And as you traverse the landscape of Israel, there's all these different churches built. There's like an Asian church, like a Greek Orthodox church, an African church, uh, a, a church from people that are in the Middle East, and then there's like an Americanized, you know, a Presbyterian church. They just, they build churches everywhere, because everyone wants to be there. The crazy thing is, when you walk into all the different sanctuaries and you see their stained glass, when you walk into like the, the Asian sanctuary, guess what Jesus looks like? Asian. When you walk into the African sanctuary, guess what Jesus looks like? He's African. And everywhere you walk, you go, oh, we do this. We go, here's what I think God would be, and then we paint him and draw him and think of him exactly in those terms. And if your heart bleeds for people, and you're like the ultimate, I care about everyone all the time, then that's what Jesus has to do for you, right? That's that's who Jesus is. So you, but what we do when we do that is we dissect scripture, and if there's parts of God that we don't like, we just get rid of it, and we ignore it, and we focus on the things that we like to focus on. And so we make God in our own image, but the problem with that is when you sing worship songs to a God that you don't understand, you're talking to no one. It's a fake version of God. It's like, it's like if you wrote me a love letter, which don't, don't do that, but if in the middle of it you were like, Man, I, I, I love, 
I love how good you are at skateboarding. I love how much you love your single child. I love, I would go, who did you write this to? Because this doesn't sound like me. And you would go, well, I don't know much about you. And I go, well, then talk to me. Listen to me. Respond to me. And I don't know how I would respond if I held this up and I went, I wrote like 3,000 pages about who I am. Why do you think you know me? Well, my friends talk about you. Like, like, if everything you know about God is from sound bites and extremes of culture and cliche phrases and you have what you have through osmosis picked up from the people around you, I can promise you, because Satan is sneaky, you have a false version of who God is because it comes from the text. Like, this is who God is. Even Jesus, when he's tempted by Satan himself, he goes back to scripture. He points everything back to the word of God. Why? Because your heart is fickle. My heart is deceitful. And when crap happens in our life, we immediately change God's character to match our pain, don't we? And, and when we are desirous of something, when sin enters the picture, when we want to do something against God, we end up shifting the way that God thinks, and we go, I think he might be okay with this. And then we adopt that sin that we talked about last night, and we start to defend that sin. That's what we do. We might start by going, I know it's not cool with God. And we go, but if I could change God, yeah, yeah, I think God's actually chill with this. He's so chill with this, I'm going to participate in it. I kind of like that. I'm going to do it more. Then it becomes who we are. And then when someone, a church leader, a pastor, a friend goes, hey, we're not, that's not who we're called to be as followers of Jesus. We then defend it. We go, excuse me, are you judging me? How dare you judge me? The only one who can judge me is above me. And you're like, that's not scripture. That's Jay-Z. <laughs> right? And we, we, in our hearts, and, and, and this is my love for you, friend, in, in a lot of our hearts right now, we've got this mixed, hodgepodge, voodoo version of who God is. But Christ and Jesus and God, incorrectly understood and incorrectly worshipped, is not a Jesus that can save you. I tell you this as, as a, like a doctor would tell you that there's cancer, that, that something must be done about it. And the way that you rectify the disease of misunderstanding and idolatry is to crawl into the presence of God again and again and again and again and understand who he actually is. Because I can tell you something. When the storm hits your life, if you are not so firmly grounded and who God is, or, or, or you, get a, you, get, you get into a relationship with someone, and they start to whisper these things in your ear that maybe God, it's the same thing as the garden. When, when Satan tempts Adam and Eve, he says, maybe God's not that good, and maybe you're not that bad, and what if you could be a God yourself? It's the same stuff we get tempted with today. Satan, is, it's, he hasn't grown in cleverness. He's equally clever, but he uses the same three lines. What if God doesn't actually want what's what if God doesn't actually love you? What if your sin actually doesn't need salvation? And man, what if you could make God into whatever you want? What if you could be God's yourselves? It 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 picks at the very heart of who we are as people. And 
and, it, and we enter into Jonah's story, and it's upsetting, it's going to be upsetting for a lot of us to read this. Here's what it says. Here's what scripture says. Verse 11. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and now it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that the great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Okay, so here's what we have so far. Jonah gets on a boat. Where did the storm come from? Bad timing? Like, these are sailors. They sail for a living, right? They've got all those little, like, catchphrases. Red sky at dawn. Sailors, something, right? I don't sail. So, um, I don't know. So, that's, so I would never get on a boat and go, I think this is a good time to sail. But they did. It is for a living. So do you think they saw the storm coming? They're like, you know what? We are like agent people. And we don't have a, like a, a motor. and no. Prote- I think we should just take on the storm. No. It came out of nowhere because what happened? God sent it. Already some of us are going, God doesn't do that. God doesn't send storms. Storms are just storm storms. Storm, storm, storms. All the time, storms. It's, it, it's a beautiful phraseology to think to yourself. The only problem is, God's word disagrees with you. <laughs> Boys and girls. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for the port. After paying the fare, he set a sail and for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea. And then it just gets worse. Just, then he makes the storm bigger. And then he makes the storm more intense. And then the storm becomes violent. It's so violent that trained sailors are starting to literally participate in superstitious things to try to get the storm to go away. They cast lots, they start throwing things off the bow of the boat, and then they go, now it's time to throw one of us off. <laughs> That's how intense the storm was. They, it was like a net neutral result to throw someone off and let them die because they were going to die anyway. And Yahweh's behind it. The God of the Bible who reveals his name to us as Yahweh is behind it. Verse 13, instead the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not. They could not because they're fighting against a squall sent by the God of the universe, right? God's not going to go, come on, come on. Oh, they're so strong. Okay, well, I guess there's only one chapter of Jonah. The sea grew wild in them before. Then they cried out to the Lord, please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. What? For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Here comes trouble. Verse 17. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. Okay. So it wasn't like a fish cruising along. That was like, I could eat a whole person. And then Jonah fell in the water, and he's like, may the gods be praised. Right? Like, God brought this, right, maybe it's grouper fish, some, some, I don't know, if there's a whale, I don't know, the text doesn't tell us. But it swallows Jonah. Right? Again, people were much shorter back then and much smaller, so, like, small man, large fish, like, just ate it, okay? From inside, this is the craziest thing, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. 
that period of time means something to Christians, something significant. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord. He said, here's what Jonah says in the belly of the Lord, in the belly of the whale. Now we don't know, is Jonah dead right now? I don't know. Is he like, right, if you watch VeggieTales, I don't think it was like that. Like, it wasn't like a cucumber comfortably sitting in like a large, like there's bile and there would have been acid there and it would have been like awful. And he probably was in some kind of intestines if he was able to be kept alive by by God's provision. And so when he's doing this, he's not like writing this at the desk that the whale swallowed previously. Like with a pen and a quill, like it just smells funny, right? This is a guy who's probably in the middle of intestines, like pushing aside the bile and, and getting burned by the acid of the fish's stomach. And he's just, and he starts to crouch. Like this is crazy. This, God did this. Here's what it says. In my distress, I'm calling out to the Lord, and he answered me. Okay, did you get that? I cried out to the Lord because I was in the middle of the ocean with nowhere to go. And he answered me by doing what? Sending a fish to eat me. What kind of an answer is that from the Almighty? From deep in the realm of the dead, I've called for help, and you listened to my cry. And his response was to do what? Then you hurled me deeper into the depths, into the very heart of the sea, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight. Jonah felt like he was all alone. felt like no one else was with him, right? He might, he might understand conceptually the omnipresence of God, but he, he just he rejects it as a concept right here. He's like, you're, you're done. You're gone. I don't feel your presence. Yet I will look to, again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threaten me. The deep surrounds me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth, be the earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought me up out of the pit. When my life was ebbing, ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. And my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. In the middle of this, here's Jonah in this great summary verse. He says this. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. See, that, remember, I, I had you circle something in chapter 1, verse 2, 3. I can't find the tiny numbers. 3. Verse 3, third sentence, begins with what phrase? After paying the fare. You see, there's, al there's always a cost, and this is what we don't understand. There's a cost to the idolatry we participate in, always. There's always a cost to following something that isn't God. And we sit here and we go, man, following Jesus is really difficult. I can promise you with every fiber of my being that no matter how confusing or difficult or hard your life is in following Jesus, your life without him will be infinitely more confusing, infinitely more difficult, and infinitely more hopeless. Do you want to know why I know that? Because God alone is the provision of our souls. He made you. He loves you. He sustains you. His sovereignty, as difficult as it is to understand, sovereignty means that God is in control of all things. No matter how hard it is for us to grasp that, I promise you, it's so much more comfortable than thinking we serve some impotent God who sees the trouble of the world, the trials of the world, and simply says, I can't do anything about it. I'm not powerful enough to stop it. I want to end by just talking about three different gods of our own design. 
And I think for the vast majority of people that come and talk to me at, at conferences, they might be an atheist or an agnostic, or maybe even one of you at camp, you'll come up to me and you'll go, the God that you described is not the God that I believe in. The problem is, if the God that you believe in is not coherent with the God of the Bible, the God that you believe in can't save you. So my heart just yearns, and, I, and I'm, I'm pleading with you to lean into this conversation, because I think for some of you, it's going to strike a chord, because the, the fake God that I present to you might be the exact God that you're worshiping, and it's not a real God. Three different versions of God that modern-day culture we worship all the time. The first one is one that I'm going to call uh, boyfriend God. Here's how boyfriend God works. Boyfriend God is a God who's present because we can feel his presence all the time. And when we can't, he's absent. And boyfriend God gets us stuff when we need it. He's kind of like a cosmic genie. He does things for us when we need it. He's always at our beck and call. He's really curious as to our needs in every single moment. But at the end of the day, we, at, with our boyfriends and with everything else, we ask, like, what can you do for me? What should you provide for me? And then we judge them based on their ability to provide that, right? And when they cease to provide, we cease to be in a relationship with them. And you'll go, get home from camp, and a week and a half from here, you're going to stop going to church. And then three months later, something's going to happen in your life. You're going to go back to church, and your pastor's going to go, Luke, where you been? And you're going to go, I just, I got back from camp. I didn't really feel God's presence. I, I just didn't feel him. I didn't feel like he was with me. I didn't feel, and you've, you've, you've based your entire concept of who God is with what Jeremiah says in the Old Testament, that your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, incapable of being tamed. And yet for a lot of us, what we understand about God is completely based in here. It's how I feel about him in every moment. And if I feel like he would think like me, then that would, that's the way he's going to do it. And if I feel like he's close, then he's close. When I feel like he's distant, he's distant. And when I feel like he's going to look the other way towards sin, he does that. And when I feel like someone else deserves to get punished, that's what's going to happen. And we know God through our heart and our heart alone. The problem with that, once again, as scripture says, is your heart is a terrible life coach. It's, the, it's an improper way of understanding God. We read, we study, we reflect, we understand, we seat who God is in our mind, and it makes the trip down to our heart after it's been properly vetted as truth. The second God that we worship, a lot of times, especially in our culture, especially at our age, at our age as high schoolers, after boyfriend God, is we have what, what, what I call like the anti-science God. Now you've got the intellectual community over here who has proper understanding of the world, and if you're willing to check your brain at the door, you could be a Christian too. There's biology and there's chemistry and there's science over here that has, that, that has no biases and everything is just done through the scientific method. And everything. But if you're a big old dum-dum, you could be a Christian. And you could just think that you're going to go somewhere when you die and that your body doesn't just start to decompose and that everyone, there's going to be some kind of ending and there's an afterlife. It's like, if you want to be a dum-dum, you can come over here and be a Christian. And some of you think that. And that you even sit here and you listen to this talk and you're like, man, I just wish I could intellectually like, get rid of all the things that I know and then maybe I could follow God. But you don't, you've never studied it. You don't know. All you've ever been told is what people stand in front of you in classrooms and tell you. You've never studied the subject. And I can tell you one thing. As someone who studied this their whole life, not even just for the, 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 the posture of your soul, but for my mind, in the marketplace of ideas, following a creator and understanding who God is makes far more sense in science, neurology, biochemistry, astrophysics. Every part of the universe 
Romans chapter 1 says, screams of the glory of a creator. And I want to challenge you, if this is the version of God that you have, that you think that you're too smart to believe in it, I, I, come and talk to me this weekend. I'd love to have a conversation with you. But I know what you know, which is that's not really your hang-up. Your hang-up is the idea of submitting your life to a power that's higher than yours. So you won't come and ask me, and you won't go figure it out, because it's become a wall that you hide behind. Well, I just don't believe that stuff because I'm a science guy. And you do, but but you, you, don't even, you don't even research. You don't ask hard questions. And when you do, you ask them to some of the least intelligent Christians you know, so you can feel pomp and you can feel better than them. This is who I was. This is who I was when I was your age. I was an atheist. I didn't believe in God. Then I ran into someone, I had a youth pastor, God, he was, he was, he was great, okay, God bless him. Every time I asked him a hard question, like, about the origin of the universe, he would go, why don't we just do jump rope and chubby bunny again, and we'll call it a night, huh? And so I thought, for sure, Christianity has no answers to my intellectual questions. Then I met a Christian thinker for the first time in my life, and my whole life was wrecked. I started reading apologists, and I went, what the heck? God is real. So you might be an anti-science person. You might be a boyfriend person where just you get the feels and the warm fuzzies and that's how you relate and understand God. And, and you're, it, I promise you, your walk with Jesus will be short-lived. The third type of God is I call like bodyguard God. Bodyguard God is the God who, he, his job, right? It's like all the old um, cartoons. He like walks behind you and he, like, stops everything bad from happening to you all the time, you know? He just protects you. He's like a Kevlar vest. And we even, we can get into this with, like, um, even some church teachings where, like, a guy will get up on stage and be like, if you follow Jesus, your life will be blessed. Did Jonah follow the Lord? Not here, but he was a prophet, right, for a long time. Found himself in the belly of a whale, drowning in the sea. Like, and, and every one of us has the same story. It doesn't matter if you follow Jesus or not. Your life is just going to be marked by these things. And, and, and here's what I want to guarantee you. I guarantee you that if your version of God is a God that comes and protects you from all harm and danger and constantly prevents you from experiencing any kind of trouble or any kind of pain or any kind of insecurity, then you, your walk with God, once again, will be really short-lived. And maybe, maybe... Your life has, to this point, been spared of suffering. Maybe. And so you're able to continue to manifest and maintain this version of God because you've had nothing challenge your life. Yet. But Jesus makes a lot of promises to us in the scripture. And here's one of the most prominent ones. He says, in this world, you will have trouble. Never once does he say, your life's going to be great. You're going to be really wealthy. You're going to have a lot of kids. You're going to live to a ripe old age. He does promise us that in this world, you will have trouble. On March 23rd, March 24th of this past year, my fifth child was born. Her name's Finley. Two days later, my wife received a diagnosis that she had a blood clot on her lungs. 25% of everyone who has a pulmonary embolism, which is what she was diagnosed with, dies instantly, and you never even know about it. My wife, Paige, felt back pain. We went to the emergency room, and the doctor walked in and said, I'm glad you came when you did. If you had waited any longer, you might not be here anymore. 
So this is me and my wife, my five kids. We have the life that we've always wanted. This is, everything was perfect. It was just perfect. And then all of a sudden, a doctor said, you almost died. Something happened to my wife's brain when that happened. Something clicked. And she, didn't, she stopped sleeping for 10 days straight. You can't do that. You can't stop sleeping. Your brain can't handle that. For 10 days, she didn't sleep. We went to doctors and clinics and everything, and she was so afraid that because she felt the pulmonary embolism for the first time when she was asleep, that if she fell asleep, her brain told her, you're going to die if you fall asleep. So she didn't. On day 10, they had to give her this tranquilizer that was so intense that they, we had to sign waivers for, the, for them to give it to her, but her brain was too far gone. I then sat with my wife as she walked through mental illness and psychosis and schizophrenia. I had to protect my kids from her until on July 31st of 2021, my wife killed herself. And everything is just like it was done. Two weeks before that, I was teaching at Hume Lake and the topic was God's sovereignty. And I like came out and I said, like, hey, when moments get intense in your life, I you know, we have we have these certain things we always say, like, you know, if you're on fire, what are you supposed to do? Stop, drop, and roll. So I said, when it comes to pain, and it was, it was I was teaching it, but I was teaching it thinking, my wife's going to get better. We're going to find the right clinic. We're going to go to the right thing. Like, I, I sent her to the best clinic in America in Tucson. And eight days later, in the clinic, she killed herself. And so, like, when you read stuff like this, I, I don't have, like, the capacity just to go, oh, well, God is good. It's awesome. The truth is, like, walking with God is really hard. And it's really confusing. But if you don't know who God is, when the storm hits, you will be counted among the number that throws out your theology with your pain. And I had to sit in a room as a brand new single dad of five kids raising them by myself that morning that, that the hospital called me and told me what happened. And every bit of things that I had taught in theory and in theology and in hypothetical became real. And I had to go, do I believe this? Like, do I believe what God says? Or is it just like a joke for me? Is this real in my heart? What am I going to do with this? In the last six months, I found the love of a Savior that you... Life is confusing with Jesus. It's infinitely more confusing without him. Without him, this was just DNA bumping into each other, and my wife killed herself. I'll never see her again. 
without Jesus and I'll never talk to her and there'll be no redemption, there'll be no better, there'll be no next. But I get to live in the blessed assurance that my wife is safe. My wife is with Jesus. I get to see her again. And God makes all things new in his kingdom. But friend, if you're not grounded in who God actually is, if you're chasing worthless idols, or if you've got this manifested, self-created version of who God is, I I beg with you, every part of my being, lean in to the scriptures. Figure out who he is. Because if you wait for the storm to come to ask who God is, you will lower your theology to match your pain. I taught the stop, drop, and roll method of God's sovereignty. I said, guys, to a whole group of high schoolers, taught the 3,000 that summer, and I said, here's the three things you gotta remember. God is sovereign, God is good, and he's making more, me more like Jesus. And I sat on the floor in my son's room in a ball, crying with everyone that I loved around me except for my wife. And I repeated to myself, God is sovereign, God is good, he's making me more like his son Jesus. And I, like, there's no way to explain that story without like the shock value of it. And I'm not trying to shock you. Like, it's not fun for me. I don't know how to like talk about God and not share what He's doing. So, but I do want you to understand that last night we talked about sin, and today we talked about like who God actually is. And if you if you don't know Him, if you've just got this blanket Americanized version of who He is if you get all of your understanding of who he is from Instagram or whatever, and you're not doing the legwork of diving into the scriptures, of jumping into church, of learning underneath people that are older than you and wiser than you and are more mature in your faith, if you've got a here-again, off-again relationship with your local church, you're setting yourself up for failure because Jesus promises us trouble will come. And Jonah, in the midst of all of his brokenness and all of his messed up thoughts and in all of his wacky way of dis- disobeying God, he sits in the middle of the storm and he cries out and he just said, like, I, if I cling to worthless idols, I'm going to forfeit the grace of God that's calling me. And in the belly of the whale, in the middle of your storm, and in the middle of my storm, in the middle of anything else that goes on, you can rest assured knowing that you have a God who is present, who is powerful, who loves you, who's got a purpose in everything that happens. And don't forget, his original perfect was her, his, his original perfect his, his original purpose was purpose was perfection. There was going to be no death. There was going to be no pain. There was going to be no trial. There was going to be nothing. But we rebelled against him, and we've welcomed a world where all of that is present. And now God in his redeeming love has come to rectify and justify and fix the problem. But if you don't lean in to who he actually is, you will be on the outside looking in, particularly when pain hits your life. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we read passages all over scripture where your sovereignty and your knowledge and your wisdom and your power and your love and your forgiveness and your redemption and your justice 
sometimes make no sense to us. And Isaiah 55 says it so clearly. Lord, my ways are not your ways, nor are my thoughts your thoughts. Just like the heavens are higher than the earth, so are your ways higher than mine. But God, we forget that. And we refuse to believe it. God, would you please just permeate the heart of everyone in this room to help them that be a permanent fixture that we are not always going to get what you're doing, but we do understand really simple things, that you are sovereign, you are good, even when we don't understand how this could be good, and that you've used everything in our lives, Romans 8, 28 and 29, to make me more like the image of your son. When I stumble, when I fail, when I sin, when the storm hits, would you please ground, ground me and ground all of us in the truth of who you are. In your name we pray, amen.